On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And welcome to About Books. This is Book TV's program and podcast, Looking at the Business of Publishing. In just a few minutes, we're going to dive into the world of political books. Our guest is Peter Osnos, longtime publishing executive, author, and founder of Public Affairs Books. But first, a look at the sales numbers when it comes to one specific category of political books, and these are memoirs from former top aides in the Trump administration. Now, according to Politico, sales of some recent books by former Trump aides trail those that were released during his presidency. For example, former White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, wrote a book called Silent Invasion this year, and it was released in April, and it sold 6,000 copies so far. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper wrote A Sacred Oath. It was released in May, and it has sold 21,000 copies. Kellyanne Conway's Here's the Deal was also released in May. It was on the New York Times bestseller list and currently has sold about 45,000 copies. Now, by comparison, former National Security Advisor John Bolton's 2020 book, The Room Where It Happened, 680,000 copies as of right now, and former FBI Director James Comey's 2018 book, A Higher Loyalty, 625,000 copies as of June 2022. Some other notable books by Trump administration officials. Peter Navarro, in Trump time, it was released in 2021, about 80,000 copies have sold. Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, wrote a book called The Chief's Chief, and it was released in 2021 as well, about 22,000 copies. Former Attorney General Bill Barr's One Damn Thing After Another was released after he left office, about 64,000 copies so far. And now we should note that Politico, for its story about these books, used NPD book scan data. That captures about 70% of hardcover sales. And now more on the world of political books with Peter Osnos, founder of Public Affairs Books. Well, Mr. Osnos, you have been in book publishing for 40 years, but prior to that, you were a journalist for many years. How did you make that transition? Well, I reached the point where I thought I had sort of fulfilled whatever plan I could have in journalism in the sense that I'd been a foreign correspondent, a variety of places I'd been an editor. And the president chairman of Random House said, you know, journalism is really not a fit profession for a grown man. If you ever get serious, call me. Uh, so I did. And uh, they found a position for me as a senior editor uh, at Random House, which was obviously a great place to go. And so I sort of made a lateral move out of the Washington Post into being a first a book editor and eventually a book publisher. So it was a mid-career move. Um, I brought with me all the experience I'd had in journalism, which turned out to be very valuable and connections. So I, I and now one other last thing. I realized almost as soon as I got there that the difference is in the newspaper business, you went out and got the story. In the publishing business, you get the story and then you have to sell the story. 
and I kind of enjoyed that part of it as much as I enjoyed getting the story. So that's why I ended up doing the career I did. Well, in a recent article in Publishers Weekly that you penned, you say that you became a specialist in acquiring political books. How did, how did that happen? Well, I, my background in journalism certainly was important. I mean, I'd been in, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been in Washington as the national editor of the Washington Post, which was a very high-ranking position, but not, not, I was number two in the national desk. Um, I covered presidencies. I, I, you know, I was in, covered the Vietnam War from both ends. Uh, covered uh, the Soviet Union and so on. So I had a very wide range of experience that I could bring to knowing whether a book was was of interest. And that's how I started doing it. And my first, my first major, 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 major political books were both very satisfying. One was Tip O'Neill's memoirs called Man of the House. And the other one was Sam Donaldson's White House memoirs called Hold On, Mr. President. And both of them were great successes uh, because I was able, I think in the case of Sam, we finally understood, I had to learn the lesson, that Sam really was somebody who was better at talking than he is at sort of narrative writing. So I sort of talked it out of him. Uh, and in the end, we got a wonderful book. And the tip, you know, was just a great storyteller. Um, and the book was very entertaining and very successful. So right then I had these two, and then I did Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter together. So in the first couple of years, I had these three major uh, books by major public figures. And I did a bunch of other books, uh, one with the great Stanley Carno, the correspondent for South Asia, Southeast Asia correspondent, one a Pulitzer. So it just sort of, you know, in the way that either was going to work or it didn't, started to work. And uh, once people got a sense that I was doing political books, they would send them to me. Uh, and at Random House, you know, we were considered one of the really major publishers in the country. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a bankroll that I could use to buy books. Uh, so I was able to get, as I said, I think in the piece that in the end, I did four presidents. Um, Jimmy Carter and Rosalind, I did six or seven books with them. I did two books with Bill Clinton. Uh, one was a campaign manifesto with Gore and the other one was his campaign book in 96. I did two books with, what was his name? Trump, uh, Art of the Deal. And uh, before this was long before he was running for president and uh, a second follow-up. And then I did Barack Obama's Dreams for My Father. So when you think about that, that's four very major public, four presidents of a very different kind. And I worked with each one of them in the close enough quarters to be able to have real opinions about them as as uh, as people, as individuals, and certainly as politicians. Well, Peter Osnos, I wanted to ask you, because in your article in Publishers Weekly, you talk about the auction process and what you paid. And for Tip O'Neill, you did an advance of about a million dollars. It the, was a million. And for Barack Obama, dreams from my father, $40,000. Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> Remember, Tip was Speaker of the House, uh, retiring as Speaker of the House. I was a great public figure and politician. I was in a heated auction and we prevailed. It's the first time anybody, like anybody, I had certainly not spent a million dollars before. It was a big enough deal that it got noted the front page of the Times said O'Neill gets a million bucks. 
the Barack story was that he was in a president of the Harvard Law Review and the New York Times reported the fact that the first black president of the Harvard Law Review and he got a contract with Simon and Schuster and he missed the deadline and they canceled it and they wanted the money back. And so his agent came to me and said, look, this is a very interesting young fellow named Barack Obama. Would you like to meet with him? And I did. And I was very impressed. This was 1994, maybe, and uh, 95 at the latest. And uh, he had written much of Dreams for My Father. We finished the book and published it. And at the time it came out, it did nicely. It was well-reviewed and so on, but it really wasn't a sensation. Nine years later, 2004, when he spoke as the keynote speaker at the Democratic Convention, the exactly the same book was reissued and sold 4 million copies. And when he and Michelle left the White House, he got 65 million for his books. And I like to say that the arc of $40,000 in 1994 to a young man just out of uh, law school and starting a career in politics to 65 million is probably a, some kind of record in publishing. Um, but in both cases, uh, he probably deserved 40,000 from me and 65 million from the people who paid him that. What's the auction process like? Auctions are a, a function of the modern way in which material is copied. Uh, in, you know, in the old days when you had to have carbon copies or something, um, most agents and agents were much less sort of major figures at the time. They would send it to a publisher or maybe two, one copy, one carbon copy. Then along came zeros and making copies. And you could send it to 10 people at the same time. And somewhere along the line, it became an accepted norm to have multiple, what's called multiple submissions. And if you have multiple submissions and you're an agent, the logical thing to do is to get the maximum amount of money so you have an auction. And in today's world, the prevailing system for what for you know significant books is always an auction. And that is why the advances have gotten bigger because auctions tend to exaggerate advances or not enhance advances. And my view about it is, uh, and I acknowledge that it's easy for me to have this view because it's not my problem, is that this is corrosive. Not that the auctions necessarily are corrosive, but in, when it comes to political books, we've now got a culture in which people, almost every major political, anybody who uh, you know, had 15 minutes in the limelight, people who, for example, testified Colonel Vindman in the in the in the uh, Fiona Hill in the first impeachment both ended up with major book contracts. Uh, anybody who's in the limelight now gets a book contract. And while I have no reason to object to people getting good money, what does bother me are people who have served as, in public life as politicians or public servants, and who see that service as eventually a payday. Not that they shouldn't be able to write books; absolutely should. But my view is they should be paid what they earn, not on a guess. Meaning in an auction, a publisher is going to pay, let's say, $1,000 or even you know, more likely a million dollars, right? For a guess, that person has not written the book and in many cases won't be writing the book himself or herself anyway. 
and have you know a co-author so they're getting a million bucks from a publisher just for showing up and that to me is offensive what should happen is write the book the book will be sold you will get royalties on the book you will get every penny you earn but no publisher should be throwing vast sums of money at politicians just because they were politicians and that's just something that i believe very strongly and uh, <clears throat> I would say that my view is, is pretty much a minority view. Well, you write in Publishers Weekly, I would pledge to the politicians only royalties, say 15% of the list price for each copy sold for going in advance. I have made this offer a number of times over the years and can affirm that no one has ever taken me up on it. That's exactly right. It, what happened here, uh, Peter, is that <clears throat> when, when Newt, Remember the year that Newt Gingrich, 1994, did contract with America? Remember that was how he, he and the Republicans took over the House. It was, Eric, it was uh, Newt Gingrich's contract with America. And at Random House of Times Books at the time, I just picked up the book because it was a public, in effect, a public document. Reissued the book, Contract with America, Newt Gingrich's Future in America. And it became a significant national bestseller. Then he became speaker. Was, he hadn't even been sworn in as speaker. And somebody stuck their head in my office and said, you know, Newt just got $4 million from HarperCollins for a book about being coming speaker. And I said, well, wait a minute. We just published Contract with America, which is his political vision. And now he's getting $4 million. And he hasn't even been sworn in. That was, to me, offensive. It was also noted, I should say, by David Streitfeld, a publishing reporter for the Washington Post. And he picked up the fact, why is Newt, who hasn't even been sworn in yet, already getting $4 million? And the result was, they said to Newt, it was said at the time, you're going to get royalties. I mean, the House of Representatives imposed this on him. You're going to get royalties, but you cannot take the $4 million. I thought that set a precedent. Uh, apparently not. Because right now, if you look at the most recent uh, uh, people like Adam Schiff, who was the, the, the head of the impeachment panel, uh, Jamie Raskin, uh, another major figure in the impeachment issues, uh, James Comey, uh, when he was in charge of the FBI, and these people got very substantial advances on books based entirely on their experience as public figures. And that to me is a very odd reward for public service and kind of corrupting because it says to you, uh, the more controversial I am, the most no more notorious I am, the more money I'm gonna make. And that's a publisher's you know, prerogative to spend that money and it's always irritated me. And so that, you know, so I can't really be accused of hypocrisy. Once I started public affairs, which is 25 years ago, I would never have ever paid any of the kinds of money that people are throwing around now. But because of, you know, one thing or another, I was able to publish a number of major, major books by people like Paul Volcker, the great Fed chair, Vernon Jordan, the great civil rights leader, um, George Soros, who obviously doesn't do it for the money. I was able to find people, Wesley Clark, when he came back after having won the war in Kosovo, was able to agree with me on a book contract without having to pay ridiculous amounts of money. 
So there was a way to do it, but you had to have an approach that Ike was able to take because of my experience. And most people choose or can't do that. And so what happens is they go into an auction, they meet with the public figure. Sometimes that public figure doesn't even show up for the meeting. And there's an auction, and then they write, I have somebody write the book for I mean, it's just, a, you know, it's not a good process in my view, but that's the process. So Peter Osnos, let's go back to your work with presidents. Did you make money on the art of the deal? And what were your, oh. what were your dealings, oh, what were your dealings like deal, with President Trump? Oh God, the art of the deal is, a, is truly a remarkable story. And if you don't mind my touting my own memoir, um, an especially good view watching history happened. There's a chapter called Editing Donald Trump. Um, and what happened was I had just arrived at Random House, brand new, fresh-faced editor. Uh, and the owner of Random House, Mr. Newhouse, uh, was already very impressed with Donald Trump. He was very impressed with Donald Trump because his best friend was the, the notorious lawyer, Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn had said, you gotta, you gotta do something with this Trump fellow because he's a comer. He built the Trump Tower, remember that? This is in the 86, 87 period. So Cy took me along to meet with Mr. Trump. There was no agent and no lawyer. And Trump was so flattered that Mr. Newhouse, a very sort of eminent figure in the world of arts and letters, would come to his office. He agreed to a, immediately to a book contract. And the book became Art of the Deal. There was a writer named Tony Schwartz who had already pitched a book to Trump. And that was the book. And when it came out in December of 87, it went immediately to the top of the bestseller list, stayed there for six months, sold a million copies, a million copies, clean. And of course, everybody was already saying, well, Trump bought the copies. I can tell you, Trump doesn't buy his own book. You know, he's just not made that way. So it was a huge triumph. And it certainly launched Donald Trump as a national figure and uh, one story I always tell because it's really relevant is a year or so, 18 months or so later, I happened to be in Atlantic City because a, a close relative of mine who was then a young man, a young boy, wanted to see some wrestling. And we went to this wrestling, slack down, whatever, you know, number nine. 18,000 people in the Atlantic City arena in 1988 or 89. Hulk Hogan, that kind of thing. And in comes Donald Trump, who is the promoter of that wrestling match. And 18,000 people stand and cheer. That's the moment I knew that he has a hold on a part of the American population that really was already long before The Apprentice, based on the book, based on his reputation. So when he became president, I saw that as the fulfillment of something that had started really in the mid 80s. What we then saw was a man who was the same human being, but a very different person, I think, in the sense that he, everything he believed in the past was on steroids. And the thing that people under, misunderstood about Trump was how incredibly focused and disciplined he can be when it's about him. He doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he lives over the store. He makes up all those names in which he humiliates people. He retaliates against literally anybody who he thinks has turned on him always has, and the final point is, he's always, always managed to get away with it. Four bankruptcies, Mueller probe, two impeachments, and he's walked away. And he lost the popular vote by 3 million to Hillary and was inaugurated president. 
So what you see in the story of Donald Trump is this extraordinary arc of somebody who came literally, not from nowhere, that's for sure, but who was a New York builder in the mid eighties and somehow his hold on popular image and his ability to project to people got him to the White House and we all know what the consequences were for depending on what your view is, better or worse. Peter Osnos, you also write in Publishers Weekly about conservative books and conservative uh, book publishing. The enormous sales of conservative, right-wing, or populist books has been a formidable marketplace phenomenon since the 1990s. Well, what we now know is that there is, um, there is a very significant audience of people, a universe, let's put it, of people for whom those books are very important. Why are they important? Because they are convinced that if it goes through, quote, the mainstream media or the media of any kind, they're not going to get their story. So they publish these books and you get a chance to be, uh, spend an evening with, you know, think of all of these guys. I mean, you know, the number of them that have already written books that came out of the, that came out of the impeachment period or the, uh, you know, it's just, I'm trying to think of, I think there was a reference yesterday to Mark Meadows' book. Gee, I didn't know he had a book. I mean, the point about it is that they, speaker, whatever he's in, chief of staff, Mark Meadows. I think the fact is that the hardcore on the right is committed deeply in a way that maybe other people underestimate. And that is why they buy those books. Now, some of them are sold in bulk. So for example, Ted Cruz, I think it was, who used $200,000 of his own campaign money. I don't wanna be 100% sure. Let's say a politician spent $200,000 of his own money buying books, that'll do. Um, so, I mean, too much, 200,000 of his campaign money to buy books. So what I'm saying is that on that side of the, of the, of the political divide, there is a kind of depth. And I guess I saw it with Trump. If you appeal to somebody's visceral excitement, if you're inspirational, if you make, if it, if they make you angry, um, then they're very likely to, to, you know, be more interested in buying a book. Well, Mr. Osnos, we've talked about some of your successes. Is there a flop in there you'd like to mention? Oh my God, a flop? Me? Matt? Oh, of course. <laughs> um, I, I, well, the se <laughs> since you want to ask, the second Trump book. So inevitably, we were going to do a sequel after Art of the Deal because it was such a great success. And so this time, <laughs> of course, he said, I, you know, I want a sequel. And Mr. Nurhaus said, of course, we'll have a sequel. And this time we paid five times more as an advance than we paid for the first book because he was a huge bestseller. Anyway, that happened to coincide with a moment in his financial career where everything was going wrong. I mean, and the morning we were, we were publishing this new book, which was going to be called Surviving at the Top. I think that was what it was. Called. Yeah, Surviving at the Top is what it was called. And the truth is, that the book where well, he was five billion dollars in in uh, debt to banks, of which three billion was his own money, and it really did look like he was going to go under. But Trump, being Trump, he didn't go under. The book went under, 
So instead of selling the million copies that we sold the first time, we sold about 10% of that and uh, we had shipped too many. And so, yeah, uh, what happened was this. Oh no, another one. Do you have time for one more? Sure. Bill Clinton's 1996 campaign book, which was called From Hope to History, uh, you know, from his Hope, Arkansas and so on. And it was a, a political agenda and it was a perfectly fine book but we had kept it secret because it was very hard to do a book with a sitting president. So we had, had to get a contract and so on. So we finally got the book done. And when we announced the book, people were so stunned that there was a secret book by the president of the United States in 1996 that we had orders for 600,000 copies. Well, I had read the book. It was a fine book but it sure as hell wasn't a book that was gonna knock anybody's socks off because it was written by a sitting president. It was a political manifesto. So my last, uh, my last engagement with that book was a piece in the Washington Post, which said the book is being returned from bookstores by the train load. <laughs> so it didn't sell very well. <clears throat> but when I wrote to the president, or actually it was on C-SPAN, he was asked why the book didn't sell better by Brian Lamb. And, and his answer was, well, I didn't have much time to promote it. Which I always thought was a very sweet way of deflecting the issue. But so my Trump and uh, second Trump and second Clinton, both were, I would have to describe as flops. Well, final question to you, Mr. Osnos. Let's turn the camera on you and especially good view watching history happen. Right. How is that done? And what was your advance? You gotta be kidding. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, what I did was, uh, what happened was, I, I, Public Affairs, which is the company I founded 25 years ago, when I left it, knowing what I know about the book business, uh, instead of sending my book out for auctions or anything like that and having you know, a dozen publishers say no, <laughs> uh, I created with my wife, uh, we established a little publishing company called Platform Books LLC. And it's what I call a gig publisher, meaning there's no real staff, but we picked up people who I knew were really good. So I had an excellent editor, an excellent uh, managing editor, meaning the production person. I had a great sales team that I had come to know very well at Ingram. So I used these people to publish my book myself. It was an investment, clearly, because I paid for everything. Um, but the truth of the matter is I knew ultimately that this was going to be up to me and i found that satisfying and i didn't have to ask anybody for an advance um and it did what it did I, well i got an hour on c-span for q a i did pbs npr i did a whole bunch of bookstores i really did was able to talk about what the book was about in a great many places and what i think i did was i reached a great many people millions and millions of people through all of these things and about zero zero point one percent bought the book which is about what you expect in today's world. But I'm very satisfied because it was a book I wanted to write and it's a book I wrote. And um, in it, you'll see that C-SPAN gets a lot of credit for having uh, helped me in various ways. Well, here's the book cover. It's called An Especially Good View, Watching History Happen by longtime book publisher and journalist Peter Osnos. And if you are interested in the article that we've been talking about, it's in Publishers Weekly and it's called The Political Book in a Political World. Mr. Osnos, thanks for being on About Books with us. Thanks very much, Peter. 
And this is About Books, Book TV's podcast and program looking at the business of publishing. Here's some books that were recently published. In Not My First Rodeo, South Dakota Governor Christy Nome discusses the leadership lessons she learned while growing up on a ranch and then serving in the House of Representatives and as governor of the Mount Rushmore State. Author Patrick Radden Keefe looks at questionable characters of American history in True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks. And in The Colony, investigative journalist Sally Denton tells the story of a breakaway Mormon sect, which was ambushed in 2019 by a Mexican drug cartel. Look for these authors in the near future on Book TV. Well, each week, dozens of books get reviewed in national and regional publications. Here are some of the new books recently reviewed. Reason Magazine says Brian Hockman's The Listeners is, quote, an especially illuminating look at the history of wiretapping in the United States. Iowa professor Victor Ray's On Critical Race Theory, Why It Matters and Why You Should Care is described by Publishers Weekly as a, quote, stirring defense of critical race theory. And the New York Times reviews Jody Rosen's History of the Bicycle, saying that the two-wheeler has, quote, aided insurgencies of every kind and magnetized political opinions. And when it comes to current bestsellers, the New York Times list includes James Patterson's autobiography and Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard's Killing the Killers. Also on the list, former Obama Communications Director Dan Pfeiffer for his take on conservative media. The book is called Battling the Big Lie. And another book on the list, Fox and Friends weekend host Pete Hegseth with his book on education policy, Battle for the American Mind. Now, most of these authors have or will be appearing on Book TV. Well, thanks for joining us on About Books, a podcast in program produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. You can listen to it and the entire library of C-SPAN podcasts on the C-SPAN Now app or wherever you get your podcasts.